Hello, and welcome back to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And today, we are going to talk about the basics of understanding mental illness. I'm still pretty early in my career, but I've spent a huge proportion of my time studying theories and models. And the one that has made the most sense to me is evolutionary theory. This basically means, or explains, that all symptoms exist for a reason. They're adaptations to actual things that have happened to us. They're the results of interactions between what is inside us, such as our history, our trauma, and our genetics, as well as the environment around us. This theory would say that anxiety is a conditioned fear of something. And it works, it's adaptive, because it keeps us from something more painful. Even in those situations where these symptoms don't seem to make any logical sense, if we explore deeper, we will find a logical explanation. For example, you might know someone who is desperately afraid of loneliness, but they still don't respond to invitations to engage socially. It's because the greater fear in this situation is the fear of rejection, and this person has come to fear rejection for a reason. Depression is the suppression of the anxiety response <clears throat> because this person has learned that the expression of emotions is not helpful. Perhaps, um, you know, they can't stand to be in this job anymore, but feeling, you know, anger about it and expressing that anger doesn't, wouldn't change anything, right? Because maybe the boss would blow up on them. So this person would likely just stay depressed in their job because taking any sort of action would prove more hurtful. Anger outbursts are conditioned to help keep a person safe. This person may have grown up in a highly chaotic environment where anger was used to shut down conversations, where it was used to appease stress. You can always bully someone into appeasing your stress, and it makes sense. Dissociation, a key uh, misunderstood symptom of a lot of conditions, is the disconnection of empathy. And this comes when you are taught that your feelings don't matter. So you cannot find value in other people's feelings. Your fight response, flight response, and freeze responses have all been shut down because they've been invalidated or punished. You're not even allowed to feel anxious or depressed. So you completely shut those things down and you become a highly productive robot. So whatever combination of symptoms we have are adaptations to things that have actually gone on in our environment. So... What we're going to review today are three posts. I'm going to read through them, adding a few extra explanations and comments. And these are the brain in the bucket, which will include a diagram in the link below. The three S's of change, which are source, symptom, and system, as well as the abuse of personality tests and neuroplasticity. All right, let's get ready to start. The brain and the bucket. Why am I anxious, angry, or depressed? I often draw these diagrams in session to help you understand the environmental sources of maladaptive emotions. Obviously, this is a simplification of neuroscience, but the concept can still be really helpful. I work from the assumption that all emotions come from real sources, that we don't generate feelings, thoughts, or beliefs that can't be tracked to some real experience. Babies aren't born to dislike themselves, to have social anxiety, to go numb, or to be addicted, or to attack people. 
these must be conditioned into their brains. They might be born with a disposition to these conditions, such as with a sensitive amygdala, but mental illness must still be preceded by some kind of stress buildup in the vast majority of cases. So first, we're looking at the stress bucket diagram. We become anxious or angry when the bucket approaches capacity. It is filled with three kinds of stressors. Trauma. This is our baggage or sludge at the bottom of the bucket. Every threat or hurt we have ever experienced that has gone suppressed or unprocessed still affects us, residing as data points in our neurons. Our brain uses this data to interpret the present. If we experience many hurts, big or small, early in life, or don't process the ones that we have, our brains are more disposed to perceive threats in the present, making us prone to anxiety or anger. We treat this by digging up the past and recoding the data, and inserting new data with safe experiences. The next kind of stress is systemic. This level of stress is determined by the nature of the world around us, what we wake up to every day. How's our government? How's the climate? Do I experience discrimination in my culture? How's my family dynamic? How's my job? How's school? Living in a stressful system will make you more likely to overflow quickly. We treat this by changing whatever parts of the system are malleable, usually family dynamics, workload, and support systems. The next kind is daily stress. What stressors occur today? How's the weather, the traffic, my child's mood, what's happening in the news or the stock market? What specifically happened at work or school today? We treat these using coping mechanisms and self-care. Whatever wounds we incur today that we don't process may sink to the bottom of the bucket as trauma. Whatever space is left is how much stress you can take before you overflow. So I want to stop here to comment on a few things. Different combinations of stress in the bucket lead to different mental illness profiles. So imagine a bucket that just has a little bit of trauma at the bottom and a moderate amount of systemic stress, but that still leaves about half the bucket empty. This kind of person will not qualify for a mental illness diagnosis. They'll be productive, they'll be happy, they'll be able to engage in relationships, and will only experience depressive or anxious symptoms on bad days, right? So maybe they have just a particularly bad day at work that fills the rest of the bucket up with a daily kind of stress. And they will feel anxious once that level reaches the top. And then they might feel depressed if they feel overwhelmed, like it floods them. They might come home just feeling shut down, unable to do anything. But if they you know, can talk it out with whoever's at home with them, or they can journal about it, or get a good night's sleep on it, then that daily stress will get processed and that person won't be traumatized. If a person has a, a mild amount of trauma in the bottom of the bucket and a heavy amount of systemic stress, then they will feel mental illness symptoms in certain environments. So, you know, a case I see often is a child that qualifies for a diagnosis when living with one parent in you know, a case of divorce or something, but not with another parent. That's because the systemic stress is really high in one environment and really low in another environment. Uh, people in these kind of situations might be able to treat their anxiety or depression by just changing something in their system, such as reducing their class load, reducing their hours at work or changing jobs, getting out of toxic relationships, they can make some pretty significant changes just by you know, setting boundaries. 
without doing any of the deeper work necessarily. But somebody whose bucket is mostly filled with trauma, just has a whole bunch of unprocessed emotions and negative experiences in their life, will not feel a significant difference by changing environments. Right? This is a person who will feel depressed regardless of what job they go to or regardless of the relationship because it's not the system that's the problem. It is what is inside this person. It is the trauma that they have incurred. They will mostly experience change when they process that trauma. And just a quick note on medication. You might think of medication as like an addition to your bucket, an extension of it. And so this will give you some extra space, some extra bandwidth, of course, if the medication is working properly and doesn't have severe side effects. But the medication does not take care of the underlying problem. So if you take a medication, start to feel better, but don't make any real changes in your life, you can expect to either up your dose or change medications later on. So make sure that you are doing the, the actual work of getting better if you are receiving the benefits of a medication. Do not stop trying to get better just because your medication is working. All right, continuing on to the next diagram. This is the brain model divided into three parts for our therapy purposes. Growth brain, centered in the prefrontal cortex. This is where we think, analyze, make plans, and deliberately create stress for growth, such as in exercising, learning, relationship building. This is what makes us human. As long as our bucket is not full, we can feel safe, happy, and progress in life. Fight or flight brain, centered around the amygdala in the middle of the brain. When our bucket approaches capacity, we feel threatened and either afraid or angry. We get that on-edge feeling. Our resources are di diverted to survival functions, meaning faster heart rate, breathing, and muscle contractions, but also restricted digestion and less access to logic and memory retention. We interpret everything as either safe or unsafe. Hobbies are safe, tasks are not, even the easy ones like washing the dishes or making that phone call. Validation and love is safe, but logical explanations, solutions, and challenges are not safe. Those feel like threats. Freeze brain, centered around the brainstem, where the most basic functions exist, such as heart and lungs. When the threat is relentless, our bucket overflows, or we feel trapped, the best thing to do is play possum. Go numb, panic, or sink into a depressed stupor. We have even less access to logic and learning, have no energy in our muscles, turning the page, and can do, do little else but breathe. We will stay in this state until the body perceives that getting up will actually be safe, that it will be worth it. When it does, it will likely enter fight or flight first. Then, when it feels safer, it will enter growth brain. Maybe you're at full capacity. You're always anxious or irritable. Maybe there's no escaping the overflow. You go numb, depressed, frozen in panic. Maybe you're bouncing between fight and flight and freeze. Either way, we get you back to your growth brain by draining the bucket. The trick is figuring out where and how. Do we use coping mechanisms to reduce those daily stressors? Do we get your family in here to reduce your systemic stress? Do we cut straight to your baggage and cry about the past? Let's figure it out together. The next chapter. Stop coping, start living. The three S's of change. 
In another post, I describe the difference between coping and numbing. Coping gets you through pain until you heal. Numbing delays pain and healing. In therapy, we often start by stabilizing with healthy coping mechanisms, activities that help us get by when we have symptoms. However, just changing your behaviors often does not address the underlying source of pain. For example, you can use crutches to get by when you tear your meniscus, but the injury won't heal without surgery. The severe emotional injuries that lead to chronic symptoms of anxiety and depression need to also be addressed at the source and in the system where they exist. Take the example of a typical college student profile coming in for anxiety. Symptoms. They feel anxious and have negative thoughts about school, dating, forming an identity, etc. This leads to unhealthy coping mechanisms like sleeping too much, procrastinating, flighty relationships, pornography, substance use. We address the symptoms with behavioral goals such as exercise and sleep schedules, thought-challenging exercises, meditation, breathing, and fear exposures. Source. Naming an original source of an anxiety helps us determine what kind of behavioral interventions will work and help us identify any unprocessed traumas, whether or not we need to do emotional surgery. What I typically see with anxious college students are experiences where they felt conditional love, meaning they felt that their parents' love or family acceptance was based on their ability to achieve certain goals. Maybe they know that their parents love them, but had experiences where they felt otherwise. When your sense of self-worth feels like it's on the line, it makes sense to be anxious about meeting a particular standard. The anxiety here arises as a fear of shame or feeling that you are unworthy. System. What conditions allowed the perception of the source to set in and cause problems or to not heal? More often than not, it is the inability of a child to talk with their parents about their feelings. For example, Mom, I feel like you won't love me if I don't get straight A's when you say things like that. This feeling often comes about because parents inadvertently create these conditions to foster success. For example, I'm hard on you because I want you to succeed and to be happy. If parents are still interacting with their college student in a way that creates a sense of conditional worth, the anxiety will persist despite attempts to challenge thoughts, change behaviors, and process old traumas. Changes in the system are brought about when someone speaks up. Unfortunately, it's often the therapist that does this before parents recognize their own tendencies. And often when children try and call their parents out, parents are not receptive to that. So, we treat emotions the same way we do torn ligaments. We use crutches and pain pills to cope, treating the symptom, perform surgery or physical therapy on any unhealed portions, treating the source through trauma processing, and make sure the leg is not an environment where ligament tears are prone to happen or get worse, treating the system. In the same way that, you know, after we do surgery on that leg, you don't go play football again, at least for a while. Next post, the abuse of personality tests and neuroplasticity. I'm an INTJ. What's your Myers-Briggs? She's a seven-wing five, and he's a three-wing one. It could never work out. Hufflepuffs unite! What's your love language? What's your favorite personality test? Have you ever made decisions or evaluations based on your or others' results? Personality tests are fun, but they aren't magic. And guess what? they're also not great science. The most popular personality tests ask about various traits, then put you in a category based on your responses. For example, you may have the following responses. 
I prefer to stay at home rather than go out. I prefer a few close friends rather than many close acquaintances. I prefer to follow rather than be in charge. Your result. You are in the stay home, close friends, follower category. As such, you may also have the following traits that correlate with those who are also in this category, but also maybe not. The personality test doesn't know you. It knows the correlations of the responses of the people who took the test. The research on personality tests has shown that they are mostly not reliable. People's results can change significantly on the same tests over time, and conditions such as mood, life circumstances, and hours of sleep the night before can produce significant alterations. But interestingly, the Big Five personality test, which seems to have the strongest but still debatable research backing, has been shown to have predictors of mental and relational issues, particularly neuroticism. This is likely because the questions on this test look a lot like a diagnostic evaluation. If you want to learn about your mental health symptoms, you'd be better off just using psychological diagnostic tests like the GAD-7 or the PHQ-9, but please don't consider mental health symptoms to be part of your inherent personality. So why is this a big deal? We probably already know we shouldn't put too much stock in personality tests. My issue is that they can sometimes strengthen the idea that people are or always will be a certain way. This is not only false thinking, it is damaging. All brains are plastic, meaning they can change and adapt. Humans have incredibly plastic brains. Even people in their 90s can make permanent sig significant changes to their mood, thinking, and behavior. If you're thinking of others in terms of, it's just the way they are, or that's just their personality, then you condemn them. The same goes for such an evaluation of yourself. There may be some medical conditions that just are, but personality traits almost never are. I'm sure you can name at least one person who has totally changed over some period in your acquaintanceship. The same goes for temperament, referring to the type and intensity of emotional reactivity, a trait with a bit more scientific backing that generally stays consistent over time. Reactive, reactive babies tend to turn into reactive kids who turn into reactive adults. However, we're gaining more understanding of how one's environment can influence temperament, either by inflating it, maintaining it, or reversing it. This means that even if a baby is born with reactive features, perhaps through exposure to stress hormones in the uterus or with a strong limbic system genetics, the natural plasticity of the brain would allow this reactivity to diminish if the baby grew up in a therapeutic environment. On that same token, a low-reactivity baby could become highly reactive if raised in a traumatic environment. However, the common pattern is that temperament remains consistent because reactive children tend to get shamed and punished, especially in the care of reactive parents, which perpetuates reactivity, while tranquil children are praised and validated, perpetuating their security and tranquility. I'm suggesting here that one year of good therapy, two years of a hard marriage, six months of combat deployment, or one year traveling the world could all produce drastic changes in your Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, or Big Five results. So, the next time you do a BuzzFeed quiz or hear a mental health guru talking about kinds of personalities or people, please take it with a grain of salt. Though you or someone you know may roughly match some of the mentioned categories, each person is unique and has immense capacity to change in personality and temperament under the proper conditions. No relationship is doomed because of incompatible enneagrams or love languages. No one needs to accommodate your traits just because they were reflected in a personality test. Everyone is flexible. No one is condemned to stay how they are now. 
So, just a quick review of what we've gone over today. All symptoms can be explained. There's nothing magical or mystical about a mental health symptom. They come from a combination of the interaction between nature and nurture. What did we come with? What were we born with? And then what happened to us? Your brain is plastic. Regardless of what you came with, you can change how your emotions work by learning coping skills, making changes in your system, and processing the traumatic wiring of the past. I didn't spend a ton of time talking about genetics here, uh, but I will link a video that I made that will explain that in a little more detail. It's about five minutes long. Well, if you made it to the end of this episode, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.